This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at new films in theaters and connects them up with films from days gone by that you may or may not have heard of, and uh, hopefully expand your cinematic horizons. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I am a film nerd, film blogger. Uh, you can find my blog called Flaw in the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we're looking at uh, certainly one of the biggest movie stars we've got going these days and his latest uh, commercial smash. And that, of course, is Tom Cruise and the latest Mission Impossible entry titled Fallout. Uh, They've gotten rid of the numbers. It's just an ongoing series, and it's probably just going to continue until he kills himself on the set one of these days. Uh, But it hasn't happened yet, and that's what we're going to talk about in a few minutes. So you got to give Tom Cruise some credit. The guy has sustained an A-list leading man uh, career since 1983. Uh, And he's been working longer than that. As he as his Twitter so uh, so funnily says, um, Tom Cruise has been running in movies since 1981. Um, He does a lot of running. And, uh, (laughs) you know, that's probably due to the fact that he is always he's you know, the hero, uh, almost always the hero of his films. Uh, And he really does do a lot of action movies. I mean, in recent years, he has done, obviously, the Mission Impossible franchise is probably his number one breadwinner. It's a very popular series of movies based on the 1960s and 70s TV series. But, um, you know, he he isn't, he did American Made recently, which was kind of a a drug cartel movie. Picture, a drama and thriller. Thriller and satire. Yeah, and so satire. So there's a streak of that going on in there. A very, yeah. very well-rounded film. Yeah, and uh, he did The Mummy, which was sort of an <laughs> well. aborted effort to try to create a new franchise of uh, of classic monster movies. They and can't all be winners. They can't all be winners, but uh, full credit to Cruz for maintaining uh, a certain amount of quality and choosing well for his career, even while being under the microscope of uh, the tabloid press. And times, I'm sure that was not of his choosing. And sometimes maybe it was. Uh, we know for a long time there, we knew all about his personal life. And of course, his his uh, uh, involvement with the Church of Scientology. But uh, I have noticed that lately since the, I guess, maybe he and his his wife, uh, second or third wife split uh, up. Katie? Yes. Katie uh, Holmes? We have not heard that much about his personal life anymore. I figure like he's just stepped away from that. You know, I, I suspect his, maybe he fired his publicist. I don't know. But I'm actually quite happy just to enjoy him on screen, risking his life for our entertainment and, uh, you know, and 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 not know anything about who he's dating. Frankly, I don't need to know any of that stuff. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like he's probably spent, when he's not on a movie set, he spends the rest of the year either uh, seeing in a hyperbaric chamber with uh, nutrients being flooded into his system or or perhaps, you know, going to uh, Scientology retreats at some fortress of solitude yeah, somewhere. He, he says he watches a lot of movies, too. So, I mean, he's, he works so much, I would be surprised he has very much uh, downtime. Uh, and he has a bunch of kids, so who knows what he does with his time. But I'm happy not to know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, I'm fine with not 
annoying. And but frankly, I will say, I mean, we talked a bit about Cruise the last time we did. Uh, uh, we talked about the Mission Impossible franchise when we did our episode on spy thrillers. And uh, but I'm really glad to be able to revisit him and his career, and especially his film, which I think is, while not my favorite Mission Impossible movie, it's amongst the best of the six. Uh, I, my favorite is probably still number five. I think they just had the right balance of action and spy games in that film that I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but uh, but six brings, obviously, Christopher McQuarrie is back. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson, who is the wonderful Scandi Brit uh, secret agent who can go toe-to-toe with Ethan Hunt. Uh, she's back. And then, you know, a lot of familiar faces. I think, in some ways, Mission Impossible Fallout is kind of a greatest hits of Mission Impossible movies, wherein we have the familiar faces. We have a lot of stunts, which are sort of throwbacks to some of the previous films, but it's also got its own kind of character. And I know that Macquarie came back to the franchise a second time uh, with the agreement that it would be a film that looked and felt different from the last one because he's, and I mean, he said this, and I think he's right, is that this is a, uh, a franchise that kind of takes the alien franchise approach of hiring a new filmmaker every time to bring something fresh to this template. And uh, by staying on for a second film, Macquarie, uh, he very aware of that. He wanted to make it feel as if he was a different filmmaker. Um, but yeah, I I, uh, I thought he did a, uh, an amazing job. I want to give a shout out to the uh, Empire podcast. Empire Magazine, the British film magazine, did a series in the last month of spoiler specials interviewing Christ- Christopher Macquarie, who is a quite a storyteller. And uh, it, it fascinating to hear all the decisions making that goes into making a mission movie and how much Tom Cruise is involved in that because he's a producer as well as the star. Uh, so he has a lot of say in the creative sort of direction of the films. And uh, and it's amazing to see what what he does with it. And again, you know, amazing to see the the risks he puts himself through. Of course, these films are completely marketed with that, like yes. everyone knows he does a lot of his own stunts and everyone knows he broke his ankle while making this <laughs> film and they keep showing it on talk shows, the clip of him jumping from one building to another in London and breaking his ankle and yet getting up and keep running. Uh, well, as someone who's broken his ankle in recent memory, I, you know, I, I wonder how much, you know, like how much the broken part of it has been <laughs> been overstated. Because <laughs> if you've actually broken your ankle, you do not get up and keep running. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe, you know, a sprain or pulled ligament or something, you could probably manage to kind of keep going on sheer adrenaline alone, but not not an actual, you know, speaking of somebody with several pins and plates in his uh, in his right foot. But um it's uh, yeah, it, it, it's cer- certainly uh, interesting that, that the Cruise has found his franchise uh, in in the Mission Impossible series based on the classic uh, '60s and '70s television show. Which uh, which interestingly enough, the the TV show had a sort of a rotating cast of of, of characters. You know, starting off with like Martin Landau and Barbara Bain, and by the end of it, uh, uh, I think um, Peter. Uh, now I've forgotten his last Graves. Name. Peter, Peter Graves. Peter Graves. Yeah. Um, uh, his, you know, was kind of the star of it by the end of it, and he's usually the person most associated with it, along with other characters like Leonard Nimoy, played right. a man, man of a thousand faces for a season or two. Um, and then Peter Gray's character, I think, is played um, John Voight in the, in the first in the first mission. Movie. That's right. Yeah. So they they bring him back 
with a different actor, and then they kind of turned the tables on his character in a way that didn't appeal to longtime fans of the series. So I'd I'd say that for people who love the TV show, the series kind of got off to a rocky start with the first installment directed by Brian De Palma. But obviously it was a big enough hit to keep going, even though number two was even more reviled by many. Yeah, Um, but they still managed to keep doing them. But but, uh, somehow they, they, they managed to kind of pull the... Pulled the uh, fat out of the fire for number three, and I've kind of kept going with just increased momentum ever since. And um, you know, and I'm sure that's due in large part to to Cruz's role as the executive producer and star, and then kind of driving force behind these these increasingly crazy series of uh, these spy thrillers that you know certainly certainly are kind of built on pieces borrowed from other franchises as well as its own history uh, from the TV show, but uh, but seems to create some sort of supercharged hot rod version of the spy thriller that that uh, in some ways excels many of its competitors. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it it's certainly in amongst the Bond and Bourne. Bourne, Bond, and Hunt are, I guess, are, are uh, high-profile spy action heroes. And, uh, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think that the cruise does very well well I, I think that i what i think i like most about number five and again in number six is that he's finally looking at least a little bit like his age like he's in his mid-50s he's looking like he's in his mid-40s um <laughs> and he's he's got but he allows himself to be vulnerable he allows himself to you know uh uh seem like he is actually can't quite effortlessly kick the crap out of four or five guys anymore. And and I think, and it's, uh, you know, uh, I think Cruz is smart because he knows that. He knows well enough that, that in fact, people like him more when he's a little bit vulnerable. And uh, I really, one of the things about this particular one I like, the fallout, is that he cast Henry Cavill. Now let's talk about him for a second. Henry Cavill, we ever, all, everyone knows him as Superman. Here he shows up basically as Superman, except with a mustache. And he is a huge guy. He's large, he's he's physical, and he's really good looking. And, you know, you figure that in a head-to-head tussle, he would hand Ethan Hunt his head. Like, he's just, he's very capable. But he's also kind of stiff, which is why I think he works quite well mm-hmm. as Clark Kent. But here... He is this presence. He's hovering in the frame. He's kind of he's always there. He's there from the very beginning. And I think although the script does tip us off to his his uh, that character's Cavill's character's uh, genuine motivation a little too early, I think, because we, the audience, can tell something about him before the rest of the cast know it. And I I feel like that's that doesn't work for a suspense film or not usually anyway. It's like, oh, if we if we're ahead of the our lead characters in, in terms of secret knowledge knowledge, then that's not good. But uh, but Cavill is just there. And you know, at certain point, they're going to be in conflict with each other. And I really like that. I think that it's smart to hire to have someone like that who's just, you know, he just he's threatening. He's threatening. <laughs> he's, but he's cocky, mm-hmm. which is what, what I guess, you know, proves to be his undoing. And and that's something that Cavill pulls off really well. I think we saw that in the Man from Uncle uh, film. Yeah, uh, the sort of retread of man, retro retread of Man from Uncle with Army Hammer, a while back that that did its job very well, and you know it was one of the better Guy Ritchie films of recent years, and yet uh, was kind of ignored at the box office because I guess people just didn't care about that particular property. I but, guess not. But it's worth worth giving a, a look because there haven't been many sort of retro spy movies actually set in the '60s uh, in recent years, and that's that's a nice throwback to to some of the classics. But um, 
you know, even if even if it didn't really quite retain the character of the original TV series. But um, uh, with Mission Impossible, they're not really care. They don't really care at all about the, the character of the original TV series. Is the you know you get the you get the tape at the beginning of the film and the mission should you choose to accept it and and uh, and the credit sequence that kind of gives little hints of what's to come, which is also uh, taken directly from the TV series. But after that, it's just a, yeah. just a full-on series of action set pieces. Well, two, two year, 20 years of this, 22 years of of action movies and uh, on this franchise, and it can stand on its own, I think. Yeah, the, uh, the, the series is interesting in that it does sort of build on its strengths and, and you know, has this constant need to kind of outdo itself. Although I, I feel like if, if I was hard-pressed to pick a favorite in the series, because I wasn't even that big a fan of it to begin with. I I like the John Woo one a little more than number two. I like it a little more than a lot of people do because some people feel it's too over the top, maybe and a little too ridiculous, which is hard to fathom compared to what we get in the later installments. I kind of want to go back and revisit that one just to see how it stands up in comparison to its its follow-ups. But um, the uh, I I do find that uh, I maybe the series peaked with with. Ghost Protocol. I, I find that the Brad Bird uh, installment, because of Brad's sensitivity towards characters, as well as the kind of the more large scale pieces, I find that had the best balance of character, motivation, as well as the you know the action set pieces and and overall plotting. I, I find that the plotting in Fallout gets a bit murky from time to time. We've got two shadow organizations that are either working together or working across purposes. It's, 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 it seems to shift gears um, over the course of the film, and you don't really get a sense of who the enemy is, although there's a couple of figures that that Cruz is chasing uh, at one point or another. At one point, he's actually he has to join in an effort to free the bad guy from the previous Mission Impossible film in order to get to the new bad guy that they're chasing in this film. And, and of course, things go horribly, horribly awry, and then they've got to kind of clean up their mess. So... Um, you know, that's what keeps it interesting. But I kind of wish that maybe this film would take a breath every now and again. Sure. It doesn't really do that. And it's yeah. and that's fine. It's it's meant to be, you know, it's it's meant to be a nonstop roller coaster pitched at an international audience. And that's kind of the the game plan for the film. And uh, that's understandable. Uh, but but, you know, some of us actually do want to see some more depth of character, you know, maybe some quieter moments with you know, Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg, who, sure. you know, play as accomplices. I mean, they're they're terrific actors in their own right. They can pull off, uh, you know, more than just looking stunned and amazed and or and or running. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, they can certainly yeah. pull off more dramatic uh, and 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 deeper character material. Maybe we'll see that down the road, because I know that uh, I, I, I'd seen that written in more than one review of, of this film. And that was my feeling as well. And, I you know, they do try to give um, Ethan Hunt some some um some more sensitive vulnerable moments you know because he's thinking about his his wife or former wife or lost wife it's 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 that that's a little murky too i mean they they kind of wrap it up a bit in this film but um you know he's certainly haunted by his past and what he's had to leave behind in order to save the world over yeah. and over again yeah. and you do get a sense of it but i feel that maybe he should be a little more haunted by it. maybe it should prey on him a little bit more than it does here um but you can't fault it. As far as fulfilling the role of, of a summer action film, you can't fault it in that department. 
Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I think the casting is actually quite good, but you do want more of them. I think that, uh, well, I mentioned her before, Rebecca Ferguson yes. as Ilsa Faust. She could have her own spinoff. She is so much fun. I really like her. Um, I also enjoyed uh, Sean Harris, who was the villain from the previous film yes. brought forward. Uh, the Crown's Vanessa Kirby is quite good as sort of a crime syndicate bigwig. And uh, she... It, as she's introduced, she, she is the daughter of Max, who was Vanessa Redgrave's character from the first film, the first Mission Impossible film. Right. So that's a nice tie-in. Yes. Uh, yeah, Michelle Monaghan does return as Ethan Hunt's uh, former wife or former wife, Julia, uh, but, you know, as kind of a, a pawn in this story, which is a bit of a drag, but it does bring things full circle, which I, I appreciated. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, there. There isn't a lot of great character work in this as much as I would have liked. Uh, and you're right, the plotting is is a little dense. And I felt like some, especially in the first act, some of the the dialogue was a little clunky. Um, and I <laughs> did see this in 3D, and that's something I wouldn't recommend. I think it was in IMAX for a long time. It isn't now. I think it's been displaced by the new. Mark Wahlberg thriller, but uh, I wish I had had a chance. I'd meant to, but I wish I didn't. I wish I'd had a chance to see it in IMAX. I feel like that's where it would have had the uh, best impact. I yeah, 3D was was you know just a drag. I, the the first act also had a lot of um, uh, lens flare stuff going on in there, and I felt like oh, is this a nod to J.J. Mm. Abrams, <laughs> who has given up the lens flare, uh, thankfully, in a lot yes. of his films. But uh, there was stuff going on there where I was like, oh, 3D just isn't helping at all. Like, I just feel like, when is it going to stop? I mean, I see 3D as being something that, you know, for animated films can be a maybe a good thing, a certain kind of blockbusters, but but a spy action thriller. I just I just wasn't I wasn't on board anyway. Uh, but that but I can I gripe about 3D and almost oh, me, every well, time. Well, me too, because it's not actually filmed. in. if they actually filmed in 3D using a proper 3D system or a two camera system, that would be one thing. But that's not how they shoot. They do it. In post production, and it, yeah, it's not very effective. I don't think either. Um, but uh, and didn't they film some of it in IMAX? I, I they may have. They because may have. I think it was uh, in maybe it was in was it in Ghost Protocol where he's scaling the the Burj Khalifa. In, yeah, yeah, that was filmed in IMAX, which, I believe. Which so. is still probably the greatest stunt that I've seen in these films. I I I, agree, I don't know if I agree with you that the fourth one is the best one, but that stunt elevates that film because it's just. I remember when I first saw it, I just had the vertigo in my ankles. It was so powerfully done. And I kept thinking, that's Cruz. He's out there on the side of the building. And it is like it's ridiculously high up. Yeah, I just felt that the four had the best balance between all these different elements. But as far as being maybe the best, providing the most action, perhaps not. Um, but uh they certainly all have their repeatability, uh, you know, rewatchability factor that's quite strong, which isn't necessarily the case with a lot of other of uh, today's action films. Safe to say Tom Cruise didn't exactly become a star overnight. Uh, you know, he started off with with uh, supporting roles, uh, starting in Endless Love, the uh, the Brooke Shields uh, romantic drama. I can't even remember who her co-star was in that. but I don't either. Um, I just remember the Lionel Richie, Diana Ross theme song, pretty much. Uh, then he was in the military school drama Taps, um, had a... A memorable part in The Outsiders, which was uh, the Francis Ford Coppola adaptation of the um, the S.E. Hinton novel. Actually, I'm surprised. I thought he would have worked with Coppola again at some point over the course of his career. I don't think that he has. Um, uh, the, the forgettable uh, 
comedy teen comedy losing it. Yeah, about, about, it's pretty forgettable. About a bunch of you know, unless you you want to fill in your um, uh, Shelley oh, from Shelley Long. Shelley, yeah. your Shelley Long filmography might be your only reason to want to to want to watch that particular film. But then everything changed in 1983 when he was picked to star in Risky Business uh, as kind of a all-American teen, although it's hard to imagine him as a teenager, but, um, you know, who uh, basically gets the use of his parents' house and car for for a weekend while they're away and gets into all kinds of shenanigans. Now, I haven't watched the film in a long... I have seen the film, but I haven't seen it in a long, long time. Mm. I, I remember Rebecca De Mornay having a memorable part. She is, yeah. And, uh, L- Lana, the, uh, the, the, the lady of the night yes. that, uh, that he gets involved with and all her friends. And, of course, it's the memorable uh, Bob Seger yeah, <laughs> underwear, scene. underwear scene, which yeah. is, you know, which that's that particular image of him just dancing around the house to... Uh, a song I never need to hear again in my life. Uh, Good old time rock and roll by Bob Seger. Um, it, you know, that kind of embedded him in the firmament, as if you will. And, uh, you know, from there on in, it was uh, it was pretty much a no holds barred uh, star career from then on in, even yeah. though there's been certainly been hiccups, even at the start. Uh, there was a couple of those. But then uh, Top Gun came along a few years later and that was kind of all she wrote. Uh Although I do like Legend, which which came out uh, the the Ridley Scott fantasy film, which came out the year before that, which saw crews with long hair and uh, you know running after unicorns and being pursued by a demon played by Tim Curry. And uh, I got to see that on the big screen uh, at the Flashback Film Fest uh, either last year or the year before. And it was fun. Uh, yeah, I'd certainly seen it on home video, but it was fun to see it on a big screen finally. I didn't see it when it came out. And uh, uh, you know, he, he looks a little silly, you know, running around in tights and so on. But but the, the film has a certain majesty about it. And Tim Curry is unbelievable. Uh, just this great visual presence and that fantastic huge makeup. horns. Yeah. Yeah. I can't. I, I, my memory of Legend was that it was almost stultifyingly dull, but that the visuals almost made up for it. All that makeup and the way that uh, that Ridley Scott shoots his films. It has that really impressive visual impact. But as a with those, it's like drama free. Like I, nothing about the story <laughs> is stuck with me. I, um, I, I liked it more on the big screen, obviously, because you're just drinking in a lot of eye candy. It's not as effective on TV yeah. at all. Um, but Risky Business remains a favorite of my sort of 80s. If I go back to watch an 80s movie, I can often rewatch Risky Business. It's partly that it's so stylish for a comedy written and directed by Paul Brickman. It's partly that uh, Cruz is just great as this kind of like awkward teen who finds confidence in being a salesman. It's very 80s in its politics. That has not aged very well. Uh, and its sexual politics as well is eh, a little bit dicey. But uh, great roles. Joey Pantalano uh, or Joey Pants as he's often known <laughs> as Guido the Killer Pimp. Uh, Bronson Pincho is hilarious in it. And the soundtrack, I mean, fair enough about the Bob Seger song, but Prince is in here. Phil Collins and the score by Tangerine Dream is just classic. Uh, you know, there's and, and like Cruz's role later in Eyes Wide Shut, the final Kubrick film. There's plenty of evidence that this film is just all a dream. The first lines are, the dream is always the same. And it stars with his character, Joel Goodson. Goodson. <laughs> little <laughs> good choice there in, in character names. Um, tell about how he has this effort to try to find a woman. He finds her in like the neighbor's house and she's having a shower. And there's, But then there's a terrible mistake where he can't find her. And uh, it all parallels, of course. It foreshadows what's going to happen in the story of the movie. Um, it's a, it's a surprisingly 
it's a surprisingly impressive film for just an 80s comedy that loves capitalism. Uh, I was quite I quite like that. And I quite liked uh, the same year. Cruz was in All the Right Moves. This is a high school football movie, sort of Friday Night Lights in rural Pennsylvania, steel towns where the high school football team is the only good thing in everyone's lives. And Cruz is is the uh, is a player. He seems a little small to be playing in a in you know high school football. It's it, but. Actually, they make reference to the fact that he he's quite well aware that he's he's super talented, but he's not a big guy, and uh, he he's just one of those kind of broy high school football guys who wants to have sex with his girlfriend, who's the excellent Leah Thompson, but she is she wants to wait. Meanwhile, his teammate played by Chris Penn gets his girlfriend pregnant, and the coach is of course Craig T. Nelson, who would basically be typecast as that character for the rest of his career, with the exception of probably Mr. Incredible uh, in The Incredibles. Uh, I really like the locations in this film. Uh, All the Right Moves is set in rural Pennsylvania and shot there in the rainy season, lots of mud and lots of factories. And uh, they really make a compelling case that this is a town that anyone would want to get away from. Um, But uh, the soundtrack's terrible, but otherwise it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a decent blue collar drama. Yeah. Well, all the right moves uh, might be one of the last times you see Tom Cruise in a film that's, rooted in reality <laughs> for for a long time through his for a long stretch of his career um directed by michael chapman who uh is better known as a cinematographer and one of the best cinematographers in the business um uh you know he worked with coppola and uh, he, he worked on raging bull uh you know so some of the best looking movies of their day and uh I think he, I think Clan of the Cave Bear might be his only other feature oh, yeah. film that 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 came along. But that's um, a pretty good one. But uh, yeah, so but capturing that gritty look of this, you know, this uh, working class Pennsylvania town is certainly something that's he captures very well. And and uh, and and Cruz, you know, gives one of the more believable uh, performances of of his uh, early career before he. He sort of enters into this realm of the Tom Cruise film where everything is very high gloss and. Uh, there's a superficiality about the films uh, that, you know, as we'll see, he'll try to break through on, on more than one occasion. But, but you know, there's just that, that glossy Paramount Tom Cruise extravaganza, you know, uh-huh. box office hit. And um, he has to be the hotshot lead in all these parts. Exactly. Yeah. In, in, in Top Gun, he was the hotshot fighter pilot. In Cocktail, he was the hotshot bartender. In, in Color of Money, he was the hotshot pool player. But in that one, his cockiness kind of worked against him, which I think... Scorsese was smart enough to realize, oh, he's got that natural vibe about him, but I'm going to twist that and and have him learn a lesson as he goes through, which he does. Interestingly, I mean, I don't we've talked about Color of Money when we talked yes. about Scorsese. But uh, yeah, that's that's where a director, I think, has seen, OK, Cruz has this uh, this sort of larger than life ambition and and self-confidence and that can be kind of grating uh and sometimes it's just naturally grating and and filmmakers just he just rides it uh you know i saw the firm which was or he's a hot shot lawyer and everybody wants him on their team you know that kind of thing uh but i think he's best when that is kind of the filmmakers and Cruz himself chooses the part where he is undercut, undercuts that ambition that so many of his characters have. Yeah. And I think after a series of these films, I mean, you get films like Days of Thunder, you know, which is basically Top Gun on wheels. Yeah, sure. Like it really, like you can sum it up that way and 
not really miss a trick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's kind of what it is. Um, and and then far away with uh, the Ron Howard directed sort of epic. It's kind of like an Irish version of Gone with the Wind or something. Right, where, far and away. Yeah, yeah. Where uh, you know he and Nicole Kidman at the height of their whirlwind uh, romance and marriage, um, you know, play Irish immigrants to the West, and it was, uh, you know, so. I, I can't. I think it was a hit, but it was certainly not very well received. No, well, neither of them are Irish, trickly. and I think that Kidman probably has more aptitude for accents than Cruz does. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but but you know we we do start to see hints that he wants to be taken seriously as an actor. He's he's proved that he's a movie star, and I, and I'll be I'll be honest. I could not abide him <laughs> at this phase of his career. I, I, I you know I, the films were everywhere. They were ubiquitous. You know when Top Gun turned up on home videos, like one of the first major features to appear on VHS that you could actually buy for your, like it wasn't something you could only rent. It was something you could actually buy. And there was a tie in with Pepsi Cola or something like that. So, you know, you were seeing ads for it everywhere, even when it was just showing up on VHS, it was like a major event. And I just was so sick of his face. (laughs) And also, and then somebody pointed out the fact that his teeth are slightly off center. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but he's had his teeth fixed. I think at a certain Uh, point, I think it was more so in the early career, but at a certain sort of by by Top Gun, they were, (laughs) they were different. (laughs) And maybe his nose too. But but even, well, yeah, but even so, like there's still like one big tooth, like in the middle of his mouth, like in the middle of his mouth. I don't know what happened, but you know, maybe he took a hit to the head and, all the right moves or something playing football, but, but the, his, his mouth is kind of off center in a weird way that once one scene cannot be unseen. And I, you know, not, until somebody pointed it out, I hadn't really paid it much attention, but at the same time, I wasn't seeing a lot of Tom Cruise films at that point. So, um, so, but, but, but Rain Man came along and that film was certainly taken a lot more seriously, pairing him with Dustin Hoffman mm-hmm. in a fairly touching tale of, of this guy discovers he has this older brother with uh, with learning disabilities, but also a special gift. And uh, and and I think it played, you know, the, the certainly the, the contrast between him and Hoffman's character. Uh, he, I mean, he's playing again. He's still kind of playing a typical Tom Cruise character, but he's thrown a curveball by having this uh, brother who just he doesn't know how to cope with until yeah. he figures out a way to use his gift to his own advantage kind of thing. Yeah, this is exactly what I'm talking about when I I uh, said that that his Tom Cruise character put in a situation where he has to be more vulnerable, where he has to be more understanding is actually makes him much more interesting because he had the tougher role in some ways in Rain Man where he had to respond to what Dustin Hoffman was doing. And uh, but he is like the hotshot guy who who's really, you know, he's getting things done and and. And uh, and then he's got to then he sees an opportunity with his brother. But does he exploit that opportunity and his brother's uh, perspective on the world? And that's he's got the most growing to do in a way. His character is the lead character in that film, though uh, Hoffman was the guy who got the Academy Award. Yeah. You know? It's like, I mean, it's it's uh, it's yeah, it's a it's a lovely film. I, I haven't seen it in some time, but I I remember thinking, oh, yeah. And then then he did um, Born on the Fourth of July, where I was like, OK, so clearly he is he's going for it. Like he wants he it was the Born on the Fourth of July felt a little bit like this is my chance to win an Oscar. Uh, I think he was nominated, but I don't he yeah. didn't win. No. Um, and then he did Interview with a Vampire a couple of years later. And all fans of the book, including the author, were like, don't hire Tom Cruise as Lestat. That is the worst idea. <laughs> and then when the movie came out, people kind of begrudgingly were like, oh, oh, he's actually 
pretty good in this role. He's he's actually more interesting than than Brad Pitt was in the lead, I felt. Uh, and I think a lot of people said that, including Anne Rice, who who came around, I think, published like an, a full page ad in uh, an L.A. paper basically saying I was wrong about Tom Cruise and he's fabulous in this part. Well, that's <laughs> that's overstating it. I think I think if I went back and re- I remember seeing interview with the vampire and and you know with with trepidation and thinking it was better than it could have been yeah um it wasn't the disaster that people were gonna paint it i i i still think he was miscast yeah um i mean you know the character is supposed to be a european i mean Anne rice herself said that you know when she was writing the book she had Mick Jagger was kind of the image she had in her mm. mind or young Mick Jagger, I guess. Uh, I don't think uh, Tom Cruise approximates that in any way, shape or form. But he, you know, he is better than passable. And I'd have to watch it again, really. To, yeah. But but my my memories of it are that he did a lot better than I expected him to. I, I certainly was able to enjoy the movie, which is all you can hope for, I guess, with any with any film of that type. But um you know, he he uh, he certainly went the extra mile to make the character work for him. Yeah, yeah. and uh, but 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 even but before that, I did appreciate the effort that he put into Born on the Fourth of July. Even even though, as you say, it, it was kind of meant to be Oscar bait uh-huh. in a way. But I, I feel like I feel like Oliver Stone uh, probably tempered that to some degree. Uh, and and having the actual Ron Kovic around, I think during the filming. Um, probably probably humbled him a little bit in 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 getting ready for the role um certainly that was the impression when he took on the role and, and decided to be in the movie and of course oliver stone couldn't have been hotter at that point in his career so you know coming off of platoon and uh, i'm trying to remember what other i think this might be before jfk i'm not, mm-hmm, not sure was. yeah but um you know so it was it was seen as sort of an oscar bait kind of ploy to, to play this character which you know normally you'd think of it like if it had been made 10 or 20 years earlier, it would have been like an Al Pacino or somebody. In fact, Al Pacino, a 1970s Al Pacino would have been the perfect actor for that role. Totally. Um, but, you know, but but Cruz, you know, he grew his hair, got a mustache and and did all, you know, physically did all the things he needed to do. But I think there was also some internal stuff happening that, that uh, you know, was the first time for me anyway that I kind of had to begrudgingly give him some credit as an actor and uh, and make me wonder what was going to come next and what he'd be up to uh, after this film. It was certainly certainly a major turning point in terms of my perception of him as a as a performer on screen. And I, I was like, well, OK, I can't I can't just completely write him off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At, at this point. Well, he was his and then he, he did uh, A Few Good Men, which was another huge hit. Uh, but I think mostly due to the Aaron Sorkin script. Uh, that was one of those films that that Cruz kind of was more of a cipher. I mean, he was a hotshot lawyer, but uh, but it was the other characters in the story that Sean, I think, more than he did in some ways. He just needed to carry it in a way that the movie star Cruz needed to carry it. And I think he did a fine job. Uh, but I think Demi Moore and certainly Jack Nicholson. Yeah, Jack Nicholson really steals, Sean. That, steals that picture yeah, completely. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, Sorkin's script is the highlight of A Few Good Men. And then, uh, then The Firm, which I watched again uh, just to prepare for this uh, chat. And the firm is a strange. I mean, it's it was that whole John Grisham thing of the '90s, where he was this super popular writer, and everything he wrote 
was made into a feature film and none of those films are memorable. Like they just don't <laughs> age well. Uh, the Firm might be the best of them. And that's, I think, due to Sidney Pollack directing and Robert Town having a hand in the script. But Cruz is again this like he's hot right out of Harvard. He's he's uh, he's got this whole like thing going on where he's being sort of sought by uh, big law firms around the country. And he goes with this Memphis firm of sort of distinguished Southern gentlemen who, it turns out, are all in bed with the mob in Chicago. And he discovers this as he goes along. And they, of course, well, they they uh, they play that sort of tricks on him and get him culpable with their bad dealings. And it it compromises his relationship with his wife played by Jeannie Triplehorn and she's she's very good in it uh, and Gene Hackman is one of the uh, lawyers and he just he is like the most valuable player he's so good in this and just watching him do his thing raises the quality of the film from just like a forgettable sort of pot boiler um, and you know Cruz is fine he runs you know, he looks good. The costumes and the wardrobe in 1993 were terrible. Nothing seems to look like he, it fits on his body. Like Cruz's, <laughs> all of Cruz's suits are baggy. Yeah, those double-breasted things. Yeah, were in. and it just, you just think to yourself, how is it possible that people thought this was a good look? It's kind of the the hangover of the 80s, but they hadn't quite figured out what 90s fashion is supposed to be like yet. And, uh, uh, and also in this film, David Strathairn and Holly Hunter help round out the cast. There are pleasures here. Uh, largely in those supporting roles, but I, I wouldn't say anyone needs to rush out and watch it. Uh, I guess if you're a if you're Cruise uh, completist, there might be something there for you. Yeah, I'd say the firm. Is, I mean, it is kind of a holdover from glossy '80s thrillers, I guess. Even though it's 1993, it does have a foot in the past in a way. It's, it's, it's not a film that people sort of refer back to very often, but it is it very was much, a huge hit at the time. Oh, massive hit. I yeah. mean, between, I mean, Grisham had such a huge following just in terms of readership. So that was obviously going to translate to the big screen. And, uh, and it has, it's, it's every inch, the well-oiled machine thriller. Like it's, yeah. it's you know, like, it's got Pollock behind the camera. Um, as you say, Robert town, um, certainly polishes up, uh, Grisham's, you know, fairly turgid plotting and and, and dialogue, and uh, and also uh, we can't forget uh, Wilford Brimley as a pretty <laughs> memorable part in this, as I think the sort of the the kind of the enforcer for the law yeah, firm. He's and, in security, yeah. and and Ed Harris uh, yeah. is you know who basically is always good, but um, it's it's great to see him here as well. Hal Hallbrook. I mean, it, it's one of the best supporting casts that Cruz has ever had in one of his more commercial films, um, and. Uh, I think actually, I think that's sort of to his credit in a way. He's he's never been too afraid to have good quality supporting casts because some major stars sometimes don't like to have strong actors in the secondary roles uh, for fear of being outshone or whatever, or having to really up their game when facing off against people like Gene Hackman and and uh, and Ed Harris. But but Cruz has never really had that fear. I don't know if he's ever had any fear. I think he may have had an operation to remove it. So, um, <laughs> so the firm really, you know, it, it, it's, it's a product of its time, but I, I think it probably, you know, if, if it turns up, you know, uh, on Netflix or someplace and you've got two hours to kill or I'm sure there are worse ways to do it. Um, you know, I'd be curious to revisit. I remember enjoying it at the time. And, uh, even though it was, it leans more on the glossy Tom Cruise feature side of things. Uh, you know, I, I remember liking it more than either you know other mainstream cruise films and also Grisham films. So that thing I was talking about earlier about how some directors use Cruise 
uh, wherein that ambition turns ugly. That ambition makes him look pretty ugly in the in the words of the song. Uh, and uh, and they use that in in the roles, I think, has allowed Cruz to shine in a way that he doesn't usually in his, as you say, his glossy leading role parts. Uh, and I think that brings us to Magnolia. Paul Thomas Anderson is a young up and coming filmmaker at the time had, I think, two features. He had uh, Sydney slash Heart 8, his first film, which is very hard to find these days. And then he had um, uh, Boogie Nights, which was a big hit. And he was off to the races. And then he makes this sprawling Altman-esque drama with multiple characters interacting in uh, suburban Los Angeles. And he he and Cruz somehow clicked. I'm not sure how that happened. Uh, I've heard stories that Cruz had a habit of the time of of reaching out to young filmmakers who he really liked and saying, look, I'd like to work with you if there's ever a chance of us, of, of you finding a part for me. Uh, and I don't know if that's apocryphal or not, but uh, if that did happen, Thomas Anderson uh, found a uh, uh, this role, which no one would have ever thought of Tom Cruise in, and I think that's what makes it so great. Cruise plays Frank T.J. Mackey, who is a, who's um, a uh, he's a professional speaker and a motivational speaker, and he channels toxic masculinity as we know it now. Uh, and he basically teaches guys pickup skills, uh, and uh, he is so loathsome. He has this long <laughs> monologues where he's basically yes. talking to his audience and he's incredibly loathsome, but he takes all of that like car salesman coolness of Cruz's career and he twists it and he twists it to the point where we're just watching him and going, oh, he's just as, you know, he's handsome and he's charismatic and he's doing that thing that Tom Cruise does, but he's selling this vicious stuff that you just can't possibly stomach and then he flips that by uh, having him show up later in the film and he discovers that he has his father is who he's estranged from is on his deathbed um and he has these scenes where he has to go and reconcile with his father before his father dies and it is heartbreaking we see Cruz with a vulnerability that i don't think we've ever seen before or since and uh, it just goes to show you that his chops as an actor are absolutely there if he gets a chance to use them yeah 1999 was uh, a really interesting year i mean he'd been off the screen for a few years, which is unusual for him. He's usually always working on something. But of course, the making Eyes Wide Shut with Stanley Kubrick took him out of commission for, for over a year at least. Yeah, not 18 longer. months, I think, yeah. it took him to make that film. And uh, and I think he had to recover from that. <laughs> I don't think that his marriage recovered from that to Nicole Kidd. Well, it certainly didn't. But um, And then uh, Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia both come out in the same year. And, uh, and both films that are notable in the way that they use Cruz and his persona and the way that people perceive him uh and kind of completely turn them against uh against themselves and uh you know both films are remarkable eyes wide shut is a film i didn't really get or enjoy the first time around it's a film that uh you know even the second or third viewing it, it doesn't really you know fully blossom if you will uh and and you know clearly kubrick and people were complaining like why would you use tom cruise Stanley Kubrick, like what? But he wanted to use the biggest star in the world to completely, uh, you know, upend the the whole idea of of this kind of superior masculinity. And then, then of course, Magnolia kind of does the same thing in a completely different context. Uh, so it, it was an interesting one-two punch. Um, you know, people weren't as in love with Eyes Wide Shut as they were with Magnolia. But I feel like Eyes Wide Shut is a film that 
you know, it, it does take some time to let it sit and kind of, uh, stew around in your brain yeah. a little bit. I yeah. think, I think the politics, the political world has, or culturally has caught up to eyes wide shut. I don't think that, I think people saw it at the time and said, Oh, Kubrick, he's getting old. He's a little bit out of touch. It just doesn't, it feels a bit clunky in a kind of weird Hitchcock sort of way. And everything about it seems a bit odd and off tune, but it's actually, as I mentioned in, in relation to risky business, it is a movie that could be entirely, almost entirely a dream. And right, uh, of yes. this, of this lead character trying to basically have sex uh, have uh, extramarital sex and and failing and so <laughs> at every turn at yes. every turn and so that constantly makes him seem kind of lame and like he's not he's not uh, you know virile in any way and and then Kubrick also shoots Tom Cruise reminding the audience consistently how how he's not very tall uh, <laughs> casting him putting him next to women who are all taller than him including Nicole Kidman by some by a full head and uh, it's remarkable to see that because we're not used to seeing Tom Cruise that way so full credit to Mr. Cruise for just like giving him his whole persona over to these filmmakers who twist it and then by by that way allowing for him to be to appear in a in a way that we aren't used to and uh, and also give him roles that he some of his best work in his career well and magnolia is you know if you hadn't seen it before uh it's it's astounding <laughs> that you know the first time you see him uh tj mackey's in one of his tv ads but then you you're at one of his seminars and he comes out with this speech and uh you know it doesn't sound like anything you've ever heard tom cruise ever do before you know clearly inspired by people like tony robbins mm-hmm. um you know who isn't you know selling the power of seduction, but it is a kind of seduction, uh, just not sexual of, 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 you know, personal and career advancement through psychological breakdown techniques and that kind of stuff. Um, that's sort of what's going on with his seminar. Um, seduce and destroy, I believe yeah. is the name yeah. of his, his book or his concept or whatever in, you know, getting any woman you want to, to sleep with you. And, and, and I'm sure that sort of thing was around at the time that Magnolia came out. It certainly became, more of a thing in the years that followed. I don't know if they were inspired by the film or not, or just became more obvious. But, um, you know, the whole professional pickup artist thing really became uh, a sort of substantial and and very dangerous part of uh, sort of, I'll I'll say male culture, but kind of white male culture uh, towards the end of the 90s and into the the millennium and and to a certain degree still continuing today. And this, this film kind of, gives you an early exposure to that and maybe an early warning yeah. for people. Uh, you know, the scene where he's talking to the, the journalist and uh, just does not turn it off is, is, is fairly astounding as well. It's that's in the first, it's a three hour movie in case you haven't seen Magnolia. It, it requires a certain commitment, but you know, it, it, it just flies by. There's so many storylines and so many characters and you're so, you have to be so focused on what's happening um, that it, you know, it really does not seem like three hours once it's all said and done. Um, you know, because you've also got William H. Macy, you've got um, uh, John C. Riley, Julianne Moore, Julianne Moore, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman as the caregiver to Jason Robards, who is T.J. Mackey's dad. Uh, you know, just just a top echelon cast. Uh, you know, with playing characters that maybe you haven't seen them play before. Uh, John C. Riley's police officer is is one of my favorite characters that he's ever done. Um, uh, and and it's it's interesting that I I'm pretty sure it's the first kind of 
at least since The Outsiders, the first ensemble part that Cruz had done. And it's not something he would do very often uh, in his career. In fact, Tropic Thunder might be the only other supporting role uh, that I'd seen him do uh, in his in his latter career. But uh, but it but he just bites into this character with such fervor. And I think the other thing that that I mean, people are kind of shocked by this character and by his full on uh, devotion to portraying it. And I think at this time, like, I mean, you know, his involvement in Scientology, I think, was becoming a lot more well known around Uh this time. I think around the breakup with Nicole Kidman, because I think that was a factor in their breakup as well. And and more was coming to light about the Church of Scientology, Cruz's involvement in it, and some of the evangelical fervor that goes into those uh, scenes where he's uh, pitching his seminars. I think people were able to relate that to maybe what happens or in their image of what happens in the church of Scientology. And, uh, you know, that creates a level of unease <laughs> with that character that is, you know, certainly lingers with you long after the film yeah, is over. Absolutely. No. I, and I, it is, it is a remarkable film and a remarkable role. And I think people should check it out if they haven't. Um, I also, I don't know if I would recommend Vanilla Sky. It was a film he made in 2001 with Cameron Crowe. He and Cameron Crowe, of course, have had this huge hit with Jerry Maguire a few years earlier. But Cameron Crowe isn't a genre filmmaker. He he is very good at telling human stories, sort of naturalistic, um, mainstream, sort of romantic comedies in, in a way. Uh, but... Uh, he, he, he tried to do sort of a gritty sort of uh, psychedelic dreamscape here with Vanilla Sky and uh, it didn't it's not quite successful but there are moments in it that are great and Cruz playing this sort of born with a silver spoon in his mouth uh, kid kid I mean he's he's an adult but he seems very youthful uh, as usual and uh, who uh, meets a woman who he's crazy about and then things go badly and half the movie you're not sure if it's a dream or it's real uh, and Jason Lee is very good in it as his best buddy who he sort of bounces off of and he, he gets disfigured and then he has these scenes where he's in a basement somewhere talking to Kurt Russell as his sort of prison psychologist and it's yeah it, you feel like the good feeling in the film which is the charm is all restricted to the first act. But after that, it never quite recovers. And you feel like by the end, that good feeling could, should return, but it doesn't quite. So I don't know that I would necessarily say people see should, should see Vanilla Sky, but it is an interesting uh, effort from, I mean, they're all, as you said, they're not all going to be winners, but it's an interesting effort from Cruz and from Cameron Crowe just outside their comfort zone. Um, I don't know, have you, do you have any memories or feelings about Vanilla Sky? Yeah, I, I remember not liking it very much at all. And, uh, and it wasn't, Cruz's fault. I just felt that the story was a bit muddled. I mean, it had already been, it was a remake of a Spanish film, yeah. Open Your Eyes, yeah. that had been widely praised. So it makes sense that somebody would want to maybe tackle it for an English language version. But but that kind of magic realism aspect of it doesn't always translate so well to Hollywood. Uh, you know, if you look at other attempts to remake films in that mold, uh, they don't always go so well. And uh, I don't know what it was about the tone of the film. Um, there's certainly lots of elements in it that I like. Cameron Diaz is 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 great in it. Uh, the soundtrack is really good. Great soundtrack, of course, being a Cameron Crowe film. Jason Lee is very appealing in the film, uh, and that it just but it just went wrong for me somehow. That the whole you know whether or not it's a dream thing didn't I didn't really care. Yeah. It doesn't have um, any suspense. Is the you problem. know Noah Taylor shows up at one point to basically explain the film yeah. to you. <laughs> yes, it's it's. You know, that's that's where I really lost it with this movie when when Noah Taylor basically like 
doesn't quite recap the film, but he basically shows up as Mr. X. You know, he was like Basil Exposition Jr. <laughs> to kind of explain what's happening. And I thought, you know, I felt like they needed to have him in there for the pe- people who were kind of losing their way with it. Uh, and but for me, that was, you know, I was following it perfectly well up to that point. And, yeah. and then I just thought, OK, this film has lost its course big time. And I, Fair enough. I could revisit it at some point. Um, it certainly Crow has made worse films since, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Elizabeth Town, maybe Elizabeth Town and Aloha. Um, so, you know, maybe in the realm of Cameron Crow films, it, it looks a little better in retrospect. But uh, yeah, my, my memories of this film are, are not positive ones. Um, we should wrap up soon as the time is getting short. I want to give out a, a shout out to a couple of of Cruz's best works in the last, well, 20 years, I guess. Uh, Collateral, his filming yes. made with Michael Mann, where he plays Vincent, the sort of silver-haired hitman with a mission ahead of him, all taking place in one night in Los Angeles. And he he goes around town with a cabbie named Max, uh, played by Jamie Foxx. And uh, it's the long, dark night of the soul. And it's a great Los Angeles film. That's very much worth seeing. And I wanted to also shout out to Oblivion from 2013. Um, um, you know, he does continue to make these genre pictures, uh, uh, Edge of Tomorrow being probably the one lately that has had, you know, d- didn't open well, but has had a real cult following since. People have gotten into this movie since, and I think they might be making a sequel. Um, but Oblivion from 2013 came and kind of went, but I really liked it because it's a self-contained science fiction picture. And uh, it's a bit of a mystery. It's about a guy who, um, he's he's a planetary caretaker, circa 2077 living in a condo in the clouds with his with his wife, his partner, uh, Vika, played by Andrea Riseborough, who's a great British actor. She reports to Sally, played by uh, Melissa Leo, um, who watches their work from somewhere high above. And uh, uh, Jack, Tom Cruise's character, is a bit of a mystery. He's out there trying to take care of these giant fusion reactors, but there are these aliens, supposedly, called scavengers, who are trying to continue sort of a, a revolution against humanity. Um, there's a lot of history History here that is unexplained, and then he keeps having flashbacks to to the um, um, Empire State Building and uh, uh, Olga Kurilenko on the Empire State Building, and he was never alive during the <laughs> point where the Empire State Building was in existence. So it doesn't make quite a lot of sense, but it all starts to come together about the middle of the film. And if you're a if you're a hardcore sci-fi geek like myself, you will you will start to piece it together, and the ending won't be a big surprise. It's it's a little bit of a twist, but it's not really a twist. Uh, but the film is gorgeous looking. It's got this huge scale, which on the big screen was absolutely gorgeous. And uh, I, yeah, it's one of the things about the film I really like when I watched again on Blu-ray. It's like see it on the biggest screen you can because it has has this this wide scale visuals, which is one of the best things about it. Yeah, I liked Oblivion a lot uh, because it did kind of commit to a hardcore sci-fi premise and kind of stick with it. And uh, and that's not something you always get. You know, usually these films kind of try to elbow in some more bubblegummy elements into it to kind of lighten the load a little bit. And uh, and I think uh, Oblivion was was pretty committed to its uh, premise and storyline and and uh, and and was was very good in that regard. Um, and of course, just getting ready for this podcast, I watched his two collaborations with probably the best known Hollywood director that we know these days. And that's Steven Spielberg. Um, you know, they made two science fiction films together, Minority Report based on a Philip K. Dick story. You know, so it's great to see another story from the guy who wrote uh, the story that inspired Blade Runner, but also um, um, the remake of War of the Worlds uh, based on the H.G. Wells novel. Uh, And 
I remember liking them both in the theaters when I saw them. So it was, it was good to revisit them on video and and uh, see that they still play out pretty well. Uh, Minority Report, in some ways, was ahead of its time in some of the things that it was talking about, like like with the 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 ads that are kind of identify you as you pass by kind of mm-hmm. thing is basically that's what you know the targeted advertising on our phones is essentially the real life version of that which this film predicts um other things it predicts uh, th- there's some things that they refer to in minority report which have long since gone by the wayside you know uh, either like restaurant chains that no longer exist or stores that don't you know that's always fun when films try to predict the future and and kind of uh you know miss by a mile but 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 overall i i I like the idea of this predictive crime unit and um you know which is kind of what we started to see with the like the nsa and trying to like nail terrorists before they can do anything uh and predict the whole predictive crime element of the story still feels very current uh even all these years later it's hard to believe that film came out uh you know 16 years ago i guess um and uh, and war of the worlds was uh i didn't love it and i i still don't but uh parts of it are very effective uh you know, it does maintain a lot of elements from the original story. Of course, it doesn't take place in Victorian England. Uh, in fact, nobody's ever really done a version of it that takes place in the time that the book was written. It's in the, the 50s version was very much a 1950s version. And of course, the Orson Welles version ported it over to uh, to the United States, as uh, which is where we stay with this film. In fact, uh, New, the New Jersey locale. Uh, of the Orson Welles version is where the invasion takes place in uh, in the Tom Cruise film, and uh, you know he you know, he's he does play he plays like a flawed character. He's a bad dad, you know, kind of not a not a deadbeat dad, but he's a neglectful father of two. You know, they his ex wife has moved on to greener pastures, and the kids kind of resent him. And he lives, you know, he's a messy uh, bachelor who works on the docks, and and uh, you know he does play that kind of downtrodden character. Um, pretty well here uh you know and he's got to kind of come to the fore to save his kids uh his kids have issues that have to be dealt with over the course of the film that can get a little annoying over the course of the film the the uh the sort of gothy teenage son is a bit overplayed i thought uh over the course of the film you know when you just want to see more fighting martians i guess but that i guess you know it's, it's spielberg he wants to inject some family heart into the core of this story um there certainly wasn't any in the 1950s version uh and 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 the ending feels a bit rushed so it's 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 actually under two hours which is kind of shocking to think about but um uh you know it feels like there's stuff missing uh in, in the in the final act but having said that it, it's it's as good an adaptation i guess as you could hope for in this day and age yeah i would say i liked war of the worlds more than i expected given the reviews there's a whole section that takes place with tim robbins in a basement that i feel is a little wonky and never quite quite sustained suspense but i you know spielberg the action director really really brings it home yeah that, well yeah that scene goes on longer than you think it's going to and and uh, and tim robbins is great as this kind of wacko guy who wants to be the leader of the new underground uh and i appreciated that more the second time around uh than i did the first time around just because you know knowing what's it's it's it the because it rushes towards its finish line after that you know that sort of drawn out sequence i think i appreciated a bit more um you know and that kind of exists in the book as well so it's just you know altered a bit to fit this modern day storyline but um you know, so, so some parts of it I liked actually more than I did the first time around. Some people, some parts of it seemed more jarring than they did. But but I think it works pretty well. And I, I, hopefully at some point they'll work together again.
been Lends Me Your Ears, another episode of the podcast uh, talking about film current and past and our look at Tom Cruise and some. We didn't even get to all of his filmography because let's face it, he's he is a lot of work out there. Uh, we could do another part two of this and still have stuff left over. But uh, great talking about him. Great talking about him with you again, Stephen. Um, we are out there on the Internet. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Lends me your ears. And uh, we both have our own Twitter accounts. Stephen, what's yours? Mine is at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And mine's named after my blog. It's Flaw in the Iris. Uh, we also have a Patreon account, which if you'd like to go and check out uh, and send us a, a little bit of cash on a monthly basis, we very, very much appreciate that. Um, you know, and rate us and review us on on iTunes and all places where, uh, where good podcasts are found. We would uh, really appreciate that as well. Many, many thanks to CKDU for offering production facilities and for playing these episodes on t- every second Tuesday at 5.30. And thanks to the Village Sound Network for crossing the I's and dotting the T's <laughs> and bringing us home. Thanks again. We'll uh, talk to you soon about the movies. See you then. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lens Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.